Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. As I was uh, preparing this week, I, I was thinking a lot about prayer and how many prayers we have. As Christians, you know, you have uh, your bedtime prayer, as I lay me down to sleep. Is that a prayer you've ever prayed? You know, you just shake your head if you have or you taught somebody. As I lay me down to sleep. You have your food prayer. You know, God bless this mess. That's a, that's a prayer that sometimes people will uh, pray. And um, I've been in the situation before. I don't know if you've ever been. So you're asked to pray for the food and you, you pray and you wax eloquent. You pray for all these things and then you get done and somebody looks at you and go, you didn't pray for the food, you know? And so that happens to me sometimes. If it happens to you, it's okay. We have the Lord's Prayer. That's the one that starts with our Father, which art in heaven. It's the only time Americans use the word art that way. Art in heaven. Traveling mercies. That's a prayer that people used to pray more Commonly, don't pray it as much now, I think, because we have uh, lane departure warning and stuff like that. But, you know, back in the day when you traveled by uh, horse and buggy, that, you know, people would pray for that thing. I looked it up and best I can figure out, I had to do math. So you're going to have to uh, give me some grace here. But uh, in horse and buggy days, it would take eight to 10 days to go from Conway to Dallas. All right. That's a long time. 10 days, uh, one to three days to go from Conway to Little Rock, about five days to get up to Northwest Arkansas. Although I think it might be longer because to get up to Northwest Arkansas, you got to do a lot of that. So um, yeah, you'd pray for traveling mercies, praying for the sick. We pray for people to be better healed. Baptists have a couple of distinct prayers. I don't know if you know this, but different Christian denominations have their own prayers. Baptists have a couple of distinct prayers, our own. One is the prayer of transition. That's the prayer where we don't know how to move from like the music to the preaching. So we just pray in that spot right there. Sometimes we use the prayer of transition in a meeting. It'll be like, all right, let's say a prayer and then we'll get started here. That's how you go to the prayer of transition because we really, we're not good at moving to the next thing. We also have what's called the prayer of sit down. And that's when we finish something, we pray and then everybody sits down and, and um, nobody tells you to do that. You just, I've always joked that amen in Baptist means sit down. And so it doesn't mean that actually, but that's the way that we understand it. A bunch of prayers. These are a bunch of prayers. We have other prayers as well. And they're typical prayers. They're the kind of prayers that we would teach children to pray. You may, got, you may get called on to pray one of these prayers. And they're good in that when we memorize prayers, we're learning different aspects of prayer. We're learning how to pray. The idea is that you would learn a template or a, a, a memorized prayer, and then you would, you would graduate out of that. And you would know sort of how to pray. But there are other prayers, other prayers that maybe we don't focus on as much. One of them that I have on my heart and my mind today is what I would call um, a prayer or prayers in the dark. Prayers in the dark. These are the sort of prayers that you pray when you feel isolated or alone or threatened, when, you, when you're afraid of the circumstances that are ahead of you. And they're difficult for us in that they are the sort of prayer that we don't see modeled, right? Because your parents prayed these prayers when they were afraid and isolated, because uh, the older people in the church that you grew up in prayed these prayers when they were threatened and they were by themselves. We didn't see it modeled as much as we might see prayer for food or, or the transitional prayer, right? So we don't really have like uh, the mental framework 
to use it. The other reason that it's so hard for us is because when we feel threatened, it's hard for us to put together our thoughts and our words and, and, and to say things that matter. Hezekiah was a king and he prays a prayer in the dark. He's in this sort of spot, in this space. And that's what we're gonna look at today. He prays in such a way that maybe I think by us listening into his prayer here in 2 Kings that we would have a resource or a tool for the next time, or maybe now, if you are walking into some space or some uh, aspect of your life that's scary or threatening, that you would know how to pray, that you would learn how to pray, that, that you would have maybe a resource that would help you articulate what it is that you are feeling the prayer is found in 2 Kings 19, beginning in verse 14. It's not a whole lot of verses, but let's look at 14. Hezekiah took the letter from the messenger's hands, read it, and then he went up to the Lord's temple and he spread it out before the Lord. And then verse 15 starts this way. And then he says, and then Hezekiah prayed. Hezekiah, like I said, is the king. He's the king of the southern kingdom, which we call Judah. The northern kingdom, after they split, the northern kingdom was called Israel. And last week, we talked about or studied here at the church, we studied um, the Assyrians, some bad dudes. Nineveh, you remember Jonah going to Nineveh? Uh, that was the capital of Assyria. Really bad, scary people have um, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, destroyed it. It's laying in ruins at this point. Smoke is still coming out of, those, uh, out of the rubble and they are marching into the southern kingdom, taking town after town as they go. And in these verses, Hezekiah looks up as king of the southern kingdom in the capital of Jerusalem and he finds himself and his city surrounded by the Assyrians. The Assyrians and their king Sennacherib sent a messenger and then a letter. And the letter pretty much says, surrender or not, but we're gonna kill you. This is your choice. Make it quick and painless or make it slow and agonizing. And so Hezekiah takes that letter, he takes it to the temple, he lays it out in front of the Lord, and then he prays. My curiosity this morning as we begin, the question I hope that you would ask yourself, that I'm asking you is, have you ever received this kind of letter? Have you ever been given this sort of news? Have you ever, uh, you know, gotten a call or an email that says that you have cancer? Have you ever seen a slip of paper left in your box that says that you are laid off, that you no longer have a job. Maybe you've been served with papers that says that he wants a divorce or that you got a text message that says that your loved one has died. Or also maybe you've been in a spot where you've been given, uh, you've been served saying that your business, the one that you started, the one that you loved is now being sued. And so you are walking into these spots and into these spaces all along the ways, whatever the letter comes and whatever form it comes in, in which your livelihood or your life or your lifestyle are all now being threatened. And so you find yourself in this very dark space. You find yourself in this reality that is hard to wrap your mind around. Much more, it's hard for you to, to say anything that matters, but we feel compelled, right? I feel compelled to run to God. But then the question is, once I run there, once I get there, then what do I say to him? How do I say it? What do I, what do I whisper? What do I pray in the dark? So that's what we're gonna look at this morning. And I would love to pray uh, with you right now because 
it's the only way I know to transition from the beginning to uh, the, the middle of the sermon. Also, it's a little bit like a food prayer, right? Um, so God has laid out his word. We're gonna eat it, we're gonna ingest it and we wanna pray that God would bless it, okay? So you pray in that spirit, you pray for me I'll, and I will pray for you, all right? God, thank you so much for those who are gathered here now. God, thank you for those who are gathering even in this moment in Greenbrier. God, the message came just a moment ago that every single seat in the Greenbrier Worship Center is filled and people are still flooding in. So God, we worship you in that. We thank you for that. God, thank you for those who are watching online now, who are in their living rooms and their hospital rooms. God, in their senior centers and on vacations. God, as they are watching now, we pray that there would be a spirit of community, that they would feel a part of us, but yet still, God, they would yearn to be with us. Bless them, bring them back to us. God, as we open our minds and our hearts to your word, to the opened Bible, we pray that that you would change us where we are inadequate, where we do not meet the standard, God, that you would give us the strength and the faith and the courage. You would give us what we need in order to be who you created us to be. God, we pray all of this in your son's name, amen. So here's the prayer, very short prayer. It starts with verse 15. Lord God, Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you made the heavens and the earth. Now that, to be honest with you, is um, a lot of Bible words, like Christian words. If if you're like me, and it's it's okay if you feel this way occasionally, but when I'm reading the Bible, there are moments when I come across parts of the Bible where I feel like that's just Bible stuff, right? It's not really the kind of thing that applies to my life, like don't be anxious or or, or keep praying or, or encourage one another. Every now and then in the Bible, over and over, they just say this stuff that just sounds Christian you know, and I don't understand what it means and I don't know how to, I'm going to apply it to my life. And this is one of those, right? What, what, are, what is our cherubim and how do you even sit between them? You know, um, something's going on there. And then he jumps from this to nations to you made stuff. How do we go from like kingdoms to arts and crafts? And, and how is all of that going to fit into my life? But the reality is, of course, as you would expect that all of this does make sense. And all of it does fit together. And if you were an ancient king or queen of Israel, this is exactly the way that you would pray. This is exactly the way you pray. Look, this is for like the shortcut answer. This is the Jewish thinking and introduction to who God is. All right. So you remember how the Bible starts, right? You remember it. It says in the beginning, uh, God spoke, God said, let there be, let there be, let there be. And there was, and there was, and there was, and it was good. You remember that? The way that the Bible introduces us to God, there's no sort of like, here's his name, here's where he's from, here's his height, you know, here's what he's into. It is God creates. The way that we are introduced to God is that God is the creator. And by essence of being the creator, he is the one who has established the standards. So when God made humans, he, gets, he has the right to say, and this is how you human the best, all right? I have created you to be a certain way, and this is the way in which you do the very best at what you were created to be. In other words, God is the creator king. He is the king of all things, which makes sense as he gets into this, of all the other nations that you have made the heavens and the earth, that God is powerful, but he's not just powerful in the Jewish way of thinking. He's also present. 
this word here, this cherubim. Have you ever seen any sort of rendition or picture, maybe um, a movie like Raiders of the Lost Ark, where you see like the, the Ark of the Covenant? Y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about? Big gold box, and then you've got the angels on top of it. And the angels' wings are kind of like almost coming together. That is the cherubim, okay? And symbolically, and in very real ways at certain times, this was the throne of God. That was his throne. That is where he sat. And this was in the Holy of Holies. He made his throne, his presence among his people, traveling when it was in a tent called the tabernacle and then established in the, in the building that they called the temple. The temple is located in Jerusalem that is now being surrounded by the Assyrians. So God's throne is there. What Hezekiah begins his prayer with is, God, you are powerful and you are present, that you are strong and you are right next to me. It's a very personal mark of God. I was reminded this week about a feeling I haven't felt in a very long time, but as I was experiencing it, it was very familiar to me. Have you ever, have you ever walked into a certain situation or a cer- certain circumstance in which, uh, in which you begin to be intimidated by whatever is on the other side of this wall, right? Whatever's past these doors. Maybe you're going to the doctor's office or maybe you're going to uh, uh, the first day of a new school or something like that, you know, and, 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 and you're trying, on the outside, you look like you have everything together. You're keeping your head up, you know, but on the inside, you're breathing different like that, you know, and you hope nobody sees that you are just on the edge of tears. You know, it's like, I've got this, I got this, I know what I'm doing here, but, but you're taking steps into the unknown because what we begin to feel like is that whatever's on the other side of these double glass doors is super big and super scary and super intimidating. And so even though we don't show it, we feel that way. It's this intimidating idea, this big and scary feeling like we are walking into the unknown past the double doors all alone. See, for me, and maybe for you too, things get darkest when I forget who God is. And when I, am, uh, when I am forgetful that he is walking with me, that I'm not walking through these double doors alone, that I'm walking with God, that's when things get darkest to me. Hezekiah begins his prayer in a way that I need to begin my prayer and you need to begin your prayer, or at least our understanding is that God is powerful, but he's also very close. I'm not walking through this alone. I'm walking through this or into this with God. He moves on to the next verse. It says in verse 16, to that powerful present God, listen closely, Lord, our Yahweh. And here, open your eyes, Yahweh, and see, hear the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Sennacherib, remember, he's the king of the Assyrians and in his messenger and in his letter, he was making fun of God. He's saying, your God's not powerful. He can't stop us. None of their gods stopped us. And we will throw your God into the fire, right? We're gonna take the ark and burn down the temple and, and that sort of stuff. And, and so in some way, Hezekiah goes from, you are the maker of heaven and earth to listen to me. At least that's the way that I first read it. It seems to not really fit like an upside down puzzle piece. These things aren't going together. Why would you tell the all powerful maker of heaven and earth to then hear you and to see you? Obviously he does. And that's obviously what he's doing. He's not asking Yahweh to do anything. He's pointing out the obvious. 
He's reminding himself, praying out loud that God is seeing, God has heard. He moves from the powerful in the present to the capable, that God is aware and God is attentive. Prayer is not unusual to the Jewish culture. All the cultures in that area, all the cultures today have some sort of prayer to a deity. What is unique about ancient Israel is that their deity did not need to be conjoled, but was attentive, was already listening before they spoke. And this is the idea behind Christian prayer as well. We don't have to ring up God. We don't have to schedule an appointment with God that the second that we speak, God is listening. Remember how I told you that Kings, first and second Kings used to be one book, all right? Or it is one story. It was one long scroll, but when they translated it into Greek, you had vowels all of a sudden, made it really long. And so they had to use two scrolls. And so that's how you get first and second Kings. In other words, Kings is one big long story about the kings and the kingdoms. And, and we're nearing the end of second Kings, but way at the beginning of first Kings, Solomon, the third king of Israel prayed a very similar prayer. Here's what he prays. Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in the earth below. Listen to your servant's prayer and his petition, Lord, my God, so that you may hear the cry and the prayer that your servant prays so that your eyes may watch over this temple night and day. The idea was not to try to get God to see It was a reminder that God is already watching, that he is already listening. They were praying this, believing that God was powerful and that he was close, but not like a lion breathing down your neck, too close for comfort, but like a protector and a provider. When we pray this way, we recognize a few things that we need to be reminded of. First of all, we recognize that God is, uh, he's managing quite well without us right? God's been running this planet for way longer than you've been alive. He sees, he hears, he knows, and he's doing well. There's a lot of amazing things that happen all the time without you being involved in it. God is managing well. And sometimes in our darkest, scariest moments, we think that God has misstepped, that he's stepped away or that he's made a mistake, but he's not. He hasn't. He never has. He's not now. God is managing quite well. Thank you. The other thing that we remind ourselves about that we need to be reminded of is that God knows. Whoever sent you that letter, God knows who they are. He knows where they live. He knows their motivation. He knows what they did to you. He knows. And sometimes those two realities are all I really need to hear. He's got this under control and he is fully aware of whoever it is that is your Sennacherib. He knows this circumstances. He knows the evil that is out there. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody that you trust as um, authoritative or like they have understanding, like a, like a doctor or a pastor, maybe a lawyer or a professor? You have these conversations with them and you try to communicate what you were going through and their response back to you is something along the lines of, of, of I see. Like, I understand, what you're, I understand what you're saying and you're right. Has that ever happened to you? Like, you're almost surprised. You're like in there complaining about something. You're like, hey, here's what's going on. And they're like, yeah, you're right. That's horrible. You know, I'm on your side on this. And there's something about that that feels like they hear you. They validate. And you can take one more step of following in the direction that they are leading you down. Why? Because they are not only powerful, they're not only present, but they're capable. 
They hear you. They see you. So what do we see Hezekiah doing here in this prayer in the dark? He is thinking a bit about how close God is, that God is, that God is able, that God is hearing you and seeing you. And then he moves into this next part that I think is really helpful. Look, he says, Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria, Sennacherib and his daddy, have devastated the nations and the lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire for they were not gods, but made by human hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. What Hezekiah does here is he tattles on Sennacherib. He goes and tells his daddy what Sennacherib just said. And I think this is a lost Christian discipline. I think we don't do this really anymore. I I mean, I don't really hear people do this. I sometimes fall out of the habit of this of just going and telling God on whoever it is that is messing with you, right? We try to be pious in our prayers. We don't, we don't wanna drag that sort of stuff in here, but here's where I really think that this is helpful is that Hezekiah is being honest. God, it is true. It is true. This is what is true. He is honest about the gravity of the threat. The Assyrians were bad people. They killed people and they were there to kill people. That was the whole thing. They weren't there to like um, borrow a cup of sugar. They were there to kill everybody in their path. And so he's honest about it. One of the reasons I think that some people are not attracted or fine or to Christianity or, or find Christianity appealing is because often, sadly, we as Christians aren't really honest about the hard parts of life. We're not honest about it. We pretend things. We say things that looks like we don't really understand what's going on. We will act like medical conditions aren't really scary for the people that are in them. We will act like you can just pray real hard and the addictions or the pain will just go away. Sometimes we act like we don't need medicine or doctors or therapists, that all the bad things that happen could be fixed instantly if we would just count our blessings and name them one by one. We don't really recognize the depth and the work and the struggle that life is. We sing more about the sweet by and by, forgetting that often it's just sour here and now. I'm not saying any of that's bad. I do think you should pray and count your blessings. But I am saying that we often don't really see the gravity of it or the pain or the the work that it takes I don't understand people that pretend like everything is hopeless, but I also don't get those that pretend like everything is fine. Often it is hard and things are bad, but they can be better. When you read scripture, there is this hope and there's this truth. This is particularly hard in the dark spaces of our lives, right? Like you'll, you'll understand this even outside of prayer. If somebody walks up to you and they say like, how, is, how, how are things going, right? That happens all the time. Hey, so how are you, you know? And if things are going well, you can respond like joyfully. Like, like, things are fine, man, yeah. Like life is good, kids are good, money's good. All of life is great, I like it, you know, that sort of stuff. You can respond that way. But if things are bad, somebody's like, how are things going? And you go, fine, you know? But in your mind, you're thinking, they are not fine. They are way not fine. But you don't want to say that, right? Because I don't know why we don't say that. I mean, it can be your closest friend. And they're like, hey, what's up? Nothing, nothing much. And you're like, I'm, a, I'm struggling, right? I don't say that sort of stuff. I think that's the same way it comes out in our prayers. We're not honest with our prayers. We don't actually tell God. We think God's going to be like disappointed if we're having a bad day in this beautiful world that he created. 
But you know what? Sometimes you have a bad day. We need to be honest. Have y'all ever read anything by a guy named Eugene Peterson? Y'all ever read that? I'm not seeing a lot of head shaking. Okay, so write it down. He's one of my very favorite pastors and thinkers. He's, he's dead now, so um, they're the best kind of people to read. They're not gonna mess up in the next few weeks on Twitter or something. So uh, Eugene Peterson is great. Um, here's a quote he says, we must pray who we actually are and not who we think we should be. In prayer, all is not sweetness and light. The way of prayer is not to cover our unlovely emotions so that they will appear respectable, but expose them so that they can be enlisted in the work of the kingdom. Hate, prayed, takes our lives to the bedrock where foundations of justice are being laid. So Hezekiah prays an honest prayer. He says, God, the threat is threatening. The scary is scary to me. God, this is bigger than what I can handle. And there's a lot of strength in that. There's a lot of power in pointing at it and saying, God, that makes me anxious. Shining a light on it and saying, God, that is bigger than what I can handle. And so he moves from there. He's like, God, you are powerful and you're present and you're capable. And this is intimidating. And then he prays what only he could pray. He asked God to do what only God can do. Lord, our God, please save us. Save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God and you alone are God. He asked God to do what only it is that God can do. He has this very specific request. This relates to the previous point where you're specific about what it is that's intimidating you and then you're specific about what you need God to do that only God can do. I don't think we do that. I think we hedge our bets, right? We pray that God would provide but then we're like, but if you don't, you know, and you want me to be homeless and hungry or something like that, your will, not mine. You know, we pray something like that because what if I pray the wrong thing? What if I pray for a wife or to pass this class or, or for a better job or something and doesn't give it to me? Does that mean he hates me? Does that mean I'm a bad Christian? Did I pray the wrong thing? Am I supposed to pray according to his will? Did I say the right words? You know, that sort of stuff. So we hedge our bets. Look, I'm thinking that all throughout scripture, people prayed specifically what they needed God to do that only God could do. You know what we need to do? And this is, this is interesting in here. We need to make sure that we are praying the what and leaving the how to God. God, here's what I need you to do. However you do that, you can figure that out. It's like, you remember Hannah? Hannah is an Old Testament character, a, a lady. She really wanted a, a child, a son but she couldn't conceive. And so she prayed about it and she prayed for a child and God gave her a son. Now, I don't know how that works. I don't know how that works. I don't fully understand how that works right now, let alone Old Testament miraculous kind of conceptions type of stuff. So I don't know how that works. She didn't know how that works. All we know is that it worked, that God did what he can do. Or Gideon, Gideon was a judge for a short time. He described himself as like, I'm the littlest guy in the smallest family and the smallest tribe in this beat up nation, right? He's hiding from the enemy and God tells him, you mighty man, you know, you need to come out and lead. And so he's intimidated by it. And he says, God, if you want me to do this, I'm gonna lay this uh, like blanket on the ground. I'm gonna lay this blanket on the ground. Next morning, I want the blanket to be wet and all the grass to be dry from the dew, you know? And he comes up and it, it did, it did that. And then he says, ah, I'm not real sure. I don't know how you're not that sure. This is why you're the smallest, all right? You got beat up, all right? Um, he says, next, I want all of, you know, the reverse, whichever one I said a minute ago. So the blanket will be wet and the grass will be dry, something like that from the dew. And it happened. 
It happened. That's what happened. How did that happen? I have no idea. I can't even get my sprinklers to not run into the middle of the road, you know. But God somehow, dry, or, you know, wets just this part here. The what is what we got to pray for. The how is up to God. Pray specifically for what you need God to do and then let, the, let him work out the details. You know what, we've been here uh, at second the last couple of months while you guys were gone. Um, we've, been, we've been turning this back into this old, old um, style altar. All right, that's what they used to call it. And I like it. Where at the end of the service, when I'm done praying uh, here in a minute, you come down, you pray. And back in the day when we did this all the time, you know what we would do? We did it, we did it wrong. But you know what we do? We go up, we come up here and we pray and we would take this burden symbolically, right? We take this burden, we'd lay it down at the altar and then we'd pray. And then we'd pick it up and take it back to the seat with us, you know? That's how we did it. We we're like, God, this is yours. Only you can handle it and I'm gonna take care of it. You know, that sort of stuff. And we need to get to the point where we literally lay it down and go, God, this is what I need you to do. How? I don't know. I don't know. I think we pray for the what, but then we think we are the how. God, I need you to do what only you can do in the way that I want you to do it. See, we need to pray for the what, but we need to let the how be what God is. So pray specifically when it's dark, that is super hard to do, I know. But you gotta just pray for what God can only do in that situation. You're walking into these circumstances that are intimidating and scary. So you pray for God to move. So here's what we see in the text, that prayers in the dark are, they begin with an understanding of who God is, he's powerful, he's present, and what he can do, he's capable, he hears, he listens, he knows. And then they move into the idea of, God, this is what scares me and this is what I need you to do. So a couple of observations, if we were just to span out from that prayer just a second, here's what I wanna point out. First of all, Hezekiah is not praying a template you know, like a prayer template. Y'all ever seen those? I, um, I, I, I use the one, it's called Acts. And I learned it in church. And some of you grew up in church, you probably know it too. A-C-T-S, Acts. I learned it in church and so I wanna teach you. Um, this is a good way to pray if you don't know how to pray. Acts, A means adoration or praise. You just start off your prayer with saying great things about God. You just think about great things. Acts, adoration. C is confession. God, here's what I did wrong. You know, this is, these are the things that I'm struggling with. T is thanksgiving. God, I'm so thankful that you've done these things in my life. And S is supplication. That went the way of like art, um, but it means request, supplication. So worship, confession, thanksgiving, request. That's a template, but Hezekiah doesn't go in, and it's helpful, but that Hezekiah doesn't go into the temple of God while the enemies are building battery rams and he lays out a little bookmark from his Bible. And he's gonna pray in a certain way and nothing's wrong with that, but this is just the way that he saw God. And so he responded to God in those moments. Listen, this is not a flowery prayer. It's not, a, it's not an artistic prayer. It's not a lot of words. You know why? Because he's scared. He's not gonna wax eloquent. This isn't the time for him to stand and make a, a royal declaration. This is a guy that just knows that God is powerful. And so he's just going to go ask him what it is that he needs. That's how you pray in these moments. Also, Hezekiah is not flawless in this. We skipped a bunch from last week to this week. But in the in-between, when the Assyrians get there, the first thing he does is he raids the temple and tries to bribe Sennacherib. Sends him a bunch of money. 
And guess what? It doesn't work. So then the next thing that he does is he gets somebody else. He goes and tells somebody else, go to Isaiah and get that guy to pray for us, right? Not him praying to God. It's like, could you get somebody else to take care of this? I think I know a guy that might know a guy that could take care of this situation for me, right? Isn't that what we do? We get into some sort of situations like, I'll, I'll fix this. Or I got a guy that can fix this until we finally realize I need God. Hezekiah is not flawless in this situation. Thank God for that. Because some of you are sitting in a situation right now where you're scared, you're intimidated, and you're thinking, I already messed this thing up. I should have prayed. That sounds good. Listen, the guy whose prayer we are studying messed it up. I'm telling you, everyone in the Bible besides Jesus messed it up first. And then they got it right. Everyone. Besides, I think Joseph. Joseph seems to be pretty flawless. But everybody else, everybody else messed it up first. So he's not using a template. He's just talking to God. He's not flawless. And the other thing is, Hezekiah doesn't know what's going to happen. So after he prays in the night, the Lord sends what's called the, the angel of the Lord. And he goes throughout the day and, and he kills the Assyrians. The angel of the Lord does. So the, the people in Jerusalem, they wake up, they look over the wall and there's 185,000 dead people laying out in the field. All right. So God took care of that. And wouldn't it be great if that's the way that God took care of certain things in your life? You know, you just pray, and you know a guy that's going to take care of this, you know? No questions, plausible deniability. It's like a holy mafia um, just went out there. And whoever sent you that letter, you don't worry about them, all right? God's got, God, God's got a plan, all right? That sort of stuff. He doesn't seem to still work that way, although it, it would be interesting. Hezekiah doesn't know how this is going to work out. And so in the same way, I'm telling you this, this is not a template and it's not a magic formula. This is not about the results. This is about the relationship. So you don't know what's going on and you're scared, you run to God. And this is what you tell him. And then you let God take care of it. You'll either be amazed that he does or surprised with whatever other solution he comes up with. But either way, this is the way you go. Overall, I think the teaching here is for us to walk away with what Hezekiah eventually learned. What Hezekiah eventually got to after the bribing and after the trying to figure out somebody that could take care of this for him, what he eventually learned was the power that is on this side of the wall that I'm standing next to is much stronger than whatever's on the other side of that wall. The power that is walking with me into this school is much power, more powerful than whatever the power is on the other side of those double doors. The power that I am standing next to, that I know, that loves me, that is present, that is powerful, that is capable it's much stronger than whatever that doctor is going to tell me. That the power on this side is stronger than the power on that side. There was a guy named Robert Coles. Robert Coles was a psychologist. He's been a psychologist for a long time. 1960, he was a psychologist in um, New Orleans. And that fall in 1960, uh, or Nolens, sorry, um, but he was a psychologist and he was dealing with a certain situation because in 1960 in New Orleans, they were uh, integrating the schools. And there was a little girl there that was getting ready to go to first day of school or her first couple of weeks of school. And her name was Ruby Bridges. And Ruby was six years old and she was gonna go to an all white elementary school. She was going to be the first black student to go to that school. And so as she was going to that school those first couple of weeks, there were cowards, racist little people who yelled at that six-year-old, cursed her and threatened her. Horrible people. 
And they did this for weeks. Ruby had to be protected by police. She had to be protected when she went to the restroom. Uh, A six-year-old protected from adults. One day, one of the teachers was watching Ruby come into the school and her lips were moving. And so the teacher told Robert Coles, said something, I think they were nervous that she was talking to those who were yelling at her, that, you know, it would would make things worse. So he asked her, why are you talking to those people? She says, I wasn't talking to them, she replied. I was just praying for them. He says, why would you do that? And she says, because they need praying for. I don't really know who's going to teach you this lesson, whether it's Ruby or Hezekiah. But at some point we have to learn, I have to learn, that the power you are walking into the situation with is much stronger than whatever the scary thing is that's around you. So you just pray and trust God. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.